from our Colossians reading this morning. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above. Oh Lord, guide us as we take in your words this morning. Amen. As of this Sunday, we've officially passed the halfway mark in Lent, and we are now in the deeper part of Lent. By all rights, our remorse and repenting could be intensifying round about now, and like Hamlet, we could be saying, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. We will do that. (laughs) So why would I pick such inviting verses of lifting our eyes heavenward? Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things above. Shouldn't we be focused on our shortcomings? On how often we miss the mark and get it all wrong? Well, yes, and indeed we will get to that as we follow Paul into chapter 3 in Colossians. If you remember from the last couple of weeks in chapters 1 and 2, We got breathtaking descriptions of who God is, who Jesus is, and what our heavenly standing is. Beginning in chapter 3 of Colossians, God puts his finger under our chin and raises our face upwards and says, basically, look up. Well, he actually says, seek the things above, set your mind on things above. God told a sister of mine to do that at a big revival thing that was happening in Toronto. There were a lot of really bizarre and unusual things going on there, some of which were from the Holy Spirit and some of which were not. She was looking and looking and looking at this man barking, probably in the not category. (laughs) And as if God was tapping her on the shoulder, she heard in her mind, clear as day, where are your eyes? Sheepishly, she left off looking at that behavior and looked up to God. Where are your eyes? He'd asked her. Similarly, centuries earlier, the same God obviously inspired Paul to write something so similar. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So if we were to look up, to seek the things above, set your minds on things above, what do you think we'd see? From what we've read in Revelation, I think we would see God the Father at some point up there. The creator of beauty and holiness, shining with love indescribable, sitting on a throne We'd see the dazzling glass sea and the emerald arch over his throne and angels large and powerful. More startling, though, I think we would see that God was radiating out from his throne pure love towards us. radiating out his pure love towards us. The 19th century Anglican revivalist Jonathan Edwards described love in a sermon entitled, The Spirit of the True Saints is a Spirit of Divine Love, based on 
1 John's uh, God is love passage. Edwards wrote, the very nature of God is love. If it should be inquired what God is, it might be answered that he is an infinite and incomprehensible fountain of love. As we seek the things that are above, and yes, set our minds on things above, picture that love radiating out towards you, towards you, towards you. Seeking the things above, we'd also see Jesus, our Savior, lover of our souls, King of kings and Lord of lords, sitting in the position of honor at God's right hand. Pouring out of Jesus would be such a love as was willing to suffer an unimaginably horrible death for our sake. A love that freely chose to endure cruel torture and murder on a cross just so, just so that we could spend all of eternity with him. And the atmosphere of above is their sound, is their motion, is their color. Is the atmosphere above achingly beautiful and glowing with peace and holiness and filled with loving kindness? We'll find out. Let's notice the company of heaven, the people in heaven. Do we see people of every tribe and nation and people and language, people from every period of history who died in Christ? How do we think they interacted with each other? Is there strain or tension or is there such kindness and love and patience, those things at the end of the Colossians lesson, and love and joy amongst them that we start crying at such a sight. Mm. Paul's exhortation for us to look up is actually just part one of a three-part sequence he goes through to reach us. The parts are basically look up at heaven and all that is therein, seek it, set your minds on it. Look in at yourself and make some adjustments. (laughs) Put off self-pleasuring desires and put on holiness, beauty of heaven here on earth. And then thirdly, reflect outwards the harmony of heaven. Since God is a huge advocate of free will, he wants us to buy into this invitation. Once we look up, and have the images from above firmly in our minds, once we determine to not just seek, but to set our minds on things above, then and only then are we able to see any sort of meaningful comparison between ourselves and what God's aspiration for us is. And we decide we want to change. We don't want what is contaminating us to be in us anymore. And the reward for our tending to Paul's entreaty seems best expressed again by Jonathan Edwards, who wrote, he who has divine love in him has a wellspring of true happiness that he carries about in his breast 
a fountain of sweetness, a spring of water of life. There is a pleasant calmness and serenity and brightness in the soul that accompanies the exercises of this holy affection. Well, actually, we can get partway there. Some of us will get very close there here by putting off the put off, put on part of uh, those little lessons Paul was doing, putting to death things that are self-oriented. My pleasure, I need this, I want this. Sexual immorality, impurity, depraved lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, all are about me, me, me. And putting away, which is really because of the pain, if we don't get what me, me, me wants, we need to put stuff away. Anger, no, can't do, if you don't even want it to begin with, you're not gonna be angry. Slander, obscene talk, and lying. Having focused our eyes on things above and seeing Jesus and God and the company of heaven in their glorious holiness, goodness, patience, and love, can we, as a consequence, see anything in our lives that's just gotta go? Can we see how we're actually harming ourselves and others with our selfish orientation and practices? If so, put them to death. What's at stake? Nothing less than the building up of the church. With the contaminants Paul lists inside us, how could we ever replicate, much less advocate, for the joyful bringing together of all peoples into Christ's love? Why would non-believers want anything to do with us? In Paul's day, amongst the early Christians, Christ, uh, labels just dropped away. Followers of Christ were now Christians, disciples of Christ, and they behaved differently with love and forbearance towards one another. While each person was still a unique individual, in Christ, each was part of a new people of love, God's chosen, chosen ones, holy and beloved. He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, look, here we all are. We used to be part of different cultures and countries and critical and judgmental. We were so that about everyone that was different from ourselves. But here, here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slaves and free people. No, Christ is all. And in all, and when you look up the word all, it really means every declension of person. I, you, he, she, it, we, you, they. When we seek the things above, we set our minds on things above, we're able to more deeply grasp the immensity of our new position. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So having sought and seen the things above, having been attracted to the harmony and peace of the varieties of people who claim Jesus the Christ as their Lord, 
We eagerly put off the self-absorbing things that hurt us and put on bearing with one another, forgiving one another. We put on love. Fifteen years ago, after becoming a Christian, I discovered, actually, that wasn't just 15 years ago, (laughs) becoming a Christian. Oh, after becoming a Christian, 15 years after that, thank you, okay, didn't understand the double entendre there. Um, I discovered how much I actually had changed when it came to love. I was in a small motorboat with a college sailing instructor during a regatta for young sailors. We were next to a race course in the waters off of Edgartown on Martha's Vineyard, standing by in case there was an accident. It was a beautiful day. The sun was shining. There was a good breeze, but nothing you know too exciting. So we were just sitting there talking. Somehow, in the natural flow of conversation, I started about talking about faith and Jesus. It made sense at the time, trust me. And I was groping for words to sum up his, the answer to his question, well, what's the big change in you since becoming a real Christian? Suddenly, it hit me. Now I can love everyone. This was a huge shift for me. I'd been brought up in my background uh, to divide people into people like us and people not like us. We even had an expression, not our kind, darling. With people like us, I was warm and curious and fun. But with people not like us, I was trained to be more distant, aloof, and cordial. It was an irreversible trespass if you breached this divide. My father, whom I highly esteemed, actually disinherited one of my older sisters, this is for real, because of her choice of husband. You don't breed a thoroughbred with a plow horse, my father declared, brooking no argument, with chilling Finality, love was rescinded. So that was one sister. Oh, there was another older sister, her twin. It was in the late 60s. She was living with her boyfriend. They did get married, but my father disinherited her because that was immoral. That's just not done. He said with the moral authority of one who was never wrong. Love was rescinded here too. So here I am, the third daughter. (laughs) And boy, did I ever stick to my social lane until I became a Christian. Case in point, I was at a uh, Wednesday night worship thing at someone's house, worship and prayer. I was praying with a woman. She was a mother of, I think, eight children, about 10 years older than me, and she was sobbing And I was holding her and hugging her and her tears and the contents of her nose went into my sweater. She definitely was in the not like us category. I held her. And then the next day at Crosby's in Hamilton, I saw her again. She was a cashier. And it struck me. In my former life, I would never have been close to someone who was a cashier But now, that part of me had been put to death. 
It just was no longer in my heart. Not when there's the excitement of you can love everybody surging through your veins. So when I see passages like the one in Colossians today, I think, what are we going to actually do with the words that we heard in our readings today? The gospel challenges up to take the measure of this commitment that we're going to make. I grew up in Missouri. Missouri's nickname is the Show Me State. We need to see it and experience it before we can believe it. So we say, show me. Audrey Hepburn popularized this phrase in the musical My Fair Lady when her character threw up her hands and frustratingly belted out the words, 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 words. I'm so sick of words. I get words all day through. Don't talk of stars burning above. If you're in love, show me. Paul and our readings today from Colossians give us a similar challenge. Show me, show me that your lives are changed and that you are one body. Show me that you can get along with each other, forgiving each other, being kind and patient and compassionate, humble, all outward focused fruit of this love of Christ coursing through us. We can't take it on the road if it's all just words. For all the words that are in the Bible, 783,137. And for all the words that Shakespeare wrote, 884,000. Yes, more than the Bible, 647 words. They all boil down to just seven architects. It's that simple. Overcoming the monster, rags to riches, the quest, the voyage and return, comedy, tragedy, and rebirth. Paul pressed in today on overcoming the monster and rags to riches. In not only Colossians, but if you read all of his letters, also in Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, he reminds us that in Jesus, we can overcome the monster the monster inside us, the monster who's trying to decide our fate, the monster who wants to trap us in perpetual darkness and death. We can move from the rags of our old self mired in earth's decay to the riches of being hidden with Christ in God. And we can enjoy the riches of being hidden with Christ in God with all our brothers and sisters who used to be labeled Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, or whatever the functional equivalent of those distinctions is in our day and age. We can meet the Missouri slash Audrey Hepburn standard of show me, show me the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So let's do something with these words that we've heard today. To the extent we can glow, let's glow. To the extent we can show, let's show. Don't talk of love. Show me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, lover of our souls, we yearn to be your holy people, a people of strength and love, 
resilience, selflessness. Come and meet us as we open ourselves up to you right now. Show us just one thing that is harming us and harming others, a a self-focused practice, a posture, a position, a sin. Show us, Lord, in our silence, Lord, show us. Thank you, Lord. And we now, knowing what that is, we put it to death today through confession and we repent of our cooperation with it for so long. Lord, I pray for each one here, each beautiful person here, that for each thing they put to death, would you breathe into us the opposite. Where there was sexual lust or impurity, breathe into us rightly ordered love. Where there was selfishness, breathe into us generosity. Where there was bearing a grudge, breathe into us forgiveness. Heal us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.